to take your Bibles and turn to the 28th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, the very last chapter of that Gospel. We will be looking at what we call the Great Commission. These are the words that conclude Matthew's Gospel. So it is safe to assume that these may be among some of the most important red letters that we find in that gospel. Our text begins at verse 16 of chapter 28. Jesus is in the midst of that 40-day period post-resurrection when he's spending time with his earliest followers giving them the task of this great commission. Beginning at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came. And said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey, to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Church, would you pray with me? Great God, save us from those spirits that seek to destroy us. Save us from malice and envy and grief, from division and criticism and backbiting and gossip. Save us from those spirits that seek to destroy us and allow us to be filled with your spirit for you are the life-giving spirit. We offer this time to you. We pray God that you will give each one of us ears to hear what you're saying to us this day. I pray God that once again you'll touch my lips with coal from your altar and speak through me and God if necessary speak in spite of me for we would hear you and you alone during this time in the powerful name of Jesus Christ we pray amen according to the book the women did exactly what Jesus had asked them to do. The resurrected Christ asked those women who were first those women who were first at the tomb to go to his followers and tell his followers to go to the Galilee and that he Jesus would meet them on a mountain there. So these women were obedient to Jesus and they went to those 11 at this point disciples and told those disciples to go north to the Galilee to a particular mountain and Jesus would meet them there. And the eleven, in obedience to Jesus, did exactly what Jesus asked and they went there to the mountain. 
and Jesus showed up. And the text says they, they worshipped him in the midst of their worship. They still shared some doubts. In many ways, that is a microcosm, a little picture of the church still today. We're worshipping Christ. But even in the midst of our worship, we wonder sometimes how, when, where. God is going to do all that God says that God will do in and through us. So they're there worshiping the resurrected Christ on a mountain in the Galilee. Mountains are important in the ministry of Jesus. We learn that in the Gospels. There was the Sermon on the Mount. There was the Mount of Transfiguration when for a few moments the veil is pulled back. And they saw, a few of them saw, the full glory of Christ on that Mount of Transfiguration. And here we find them again on a mount in the Galilee. And it is on this mount that Jesus gives to his earliest followers and by extension to each one of us what the church has always called the Great Commission. Now, I know oftentimes, particularly in the modern contemporary church, this great commission has become the great omission. We hope that someone else will fulfill what Christ has called all of us to fulfill. I hope that today in this time of worship, each one of us individually will again commit to being ministers of the great commission we will do that which the living Christ is calling us to do. So we hear the Great Commission when we look at these red letters at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus begins with a great declaration. Jesus begins by saying to those followers, all, not some, but all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This Jesus has been vindicated this Jesus has been verified by the resurrection that the Father gave to this Jesus. And now this Jesus, who we know to be Lord of heaven and earth, has all authority. And no one else has any authority because he has all authority. And any other authority that anyone might exercise is simply authority that this Jesus delegates. And this Jesus, the one to whom all authority has been given on heaven and earth, that's everywhere delegates some of that authority to his original followers, delegates some of that authority to us, and it is the authority to go forth and proclaim the Great Commission, the message that we have been given by Christ to proclaim to the world. And we see the commission. Jesus here offers us a few imperatives as Jesus offers to us what it is we're to be doing now in this post-Easter reality. Notice he says, first, go. Go, therefore. Now, I know sometimes in the Christian community, we get a little confused about this, and we act as if Jesus just simply said that we ought to proclaim to the world, come to church, come here, come here and join us. And that's certainly a good thing. We should never forsake our assembling together, one with another. But we assemble we gather for the purpose of scattering into the world. Jesus' great commission is to go. And in a few moments, you will finish your worship. We'll finish our worship. You'll go through these doors, and I hope that you go through these doors committed to going 
as Christ has commanded us to go. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all people groups. Notice he does not say, go and make Christians of all people. It is the role, the task, and the divine prerogative alone of the Holy Spirit to make Christians. John Wesley one time said that as the followers of Christ, what we do when we do the role of evangelism is we just second the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that makes Christians. What we're called to do, notice in the text, is to be instruments of God making disciples. You know, when you look at the New Testament, the word Christian only occurs three times, I believe. But the word disciple occurs dozens of times in the New Testament. We need to be very clear what it means to be a disciple so that we can examine our own lives and see whether or not we are living as disciples of Christ. And then as we understand what a disciple is, it will make it far easier for us to go into the world and make disciples. The word disciple in the Greek simply means a learner or a student. Or actually, I prefer the word an apprentice. And you know what an apprentice is. It's someone that connects himself or herself to the master, to the master carpenter or the master mason. And the apprentice learns to think and to do what the master thinks and does. So we are called to be disciples, apprentices to Jesus, and we're to help others to become apprentices to Jesus as we live as Christ followers in the world. We should walk so closely to the rabbi, our rabbi, that we experience the dust of his sandals as we seek to think and to live as Jesus, our master, thinks and lives so we're called to go to the whole world, all people groups, and make disciples. Now this means obviously more than just distributing some gospel tracts. Obviously it means more than just helping people believe the right doctrine. That all may be fine and good, but we're called to make disciples. That means to enter into a relationship with people to help them become apprentices of Jesus Christ. We need to make sure we are individually apprentices of Jesus Christ before we seek to help others become apprentices of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely imperative that people become apprentices of Jesus Christ. Now I know in the modern era, particularly in the West, we think that Jesus is a good option to help us live the life we want to live here in this age, but the Gospels are very clear. Jesus is way beyond just a good option. Jesus is essential. Jesus is crucial. Jesus is critical for the living of life in this world and the living of life in the world to come. This week, I am going to be teaching uh, four days uh, in our, our adult vacation Bible school on the doctrine of the afterlife. We're going to look at heaven, hell, and see what we can say about purgatory. But one of the things we'll learn real quickly, that when we look at the New Testament, it is Jesus that says more about hell than anyone else in the New Testament. Paul never references hell by the use of the term. He talks about the concept. But Jesus is the one, is there in the red letters, 
where we read the most about hell, eternal separation from God. Jesus is not just another way, a good option to add to an already full life. Being a disciple of Christ, being a Christ follower is imperative, critical, crucial for the living of life in this world and in the world to come. How dare we not be passionate about sharing Jesus with the people out there? I think one of the greatest dramas of the 20th century was the sinking of the steamship Titanic in April of 1912. In so many ways, that was a pivotal event for the 20th century. And I'm not sure we understand just how dramatic that event was for England and the United States. Perhaps you can think about it this way. Think about 9-11, the attack on the World Trade Centers, or think about the death of John F. Kennedy. Magnify that a little bit, and then perhaps you'll get close to understanding how the sinking of the Titanic affected the world in 1912. The epitome of our technology, the Titanic. Some of the greatest, most powerful, influential people in England and the United States were aboard that vessel. And she sank in the North Atlantic. There's so much that is wonderful drama about that. But I I think particularly about the lifeboat situation aboard the Titanic. There were only 20 lifeboats, 18 lifeboats and two collapsible lifeboats there aboard the Titanic. And that met the legal requirement of the day. You see, they had no comprehension that that ship, any of their ships, would go down. Human arrogance, being what it is, thought that the most they would need those lifeboats for was to transfer people from a damaged vessel to another vessel. They never thought that the ship would go down. So they only had lifeboats for about half the people aboard the ship. And then when they went to fill those lifeboats, they only filled those lifeboats about half full. Because they still thought, many of them, that it would be safer and more convenient, more comfortable to stay aboard the damaged vessel than to get in those little boats out there in the North Atlantic in the darkness of the night. But really, for me, the, the memory that I can't shake is that after the ship went down and hundreds of people were there in the frigid water of the North Atlantic in that night, they were floating because of their life jackets and they were in the process of freezing to death. Only two, only two of those lifeboats came back to pick anyone up. You see, they were afraid. They were afraid that if they went back, the people in the water would swamp them and then they would perish there in the North Atlantic. So they waited and they waited too long. Only two lifeboats went back to pick up survivors from the waters of the North Atlantic. And by the time they went back, they only found two living people there floating in the waters. How dare we not go to the world and tell them of Jesus? How dare we not help our family and our friends 
enter into a vibrant, vital relationship with Jesus Christ and find the life, the new life, the abundant life that is ours in Jesus Christ. It's not just a way we've chosen for ourselves. It's not just one of many paths. The church has always held the conviction that Jesus is essential for the living of life in this world and in the life to come. Notice Jesus says, go. He says, make disciples of everyone, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says to them to go and incorporate these new disciples into the life of the Christian community, baptizing them initiating them into the life of the Christian community. It's not just about our individual deliverance or salvation. It's about being delivered by Christ and becoming part of Christ's people here on this earth. He says, go and baptize them, initiate them in the name or perhaps into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that occasionally there may, there may come two people to your front door. They'll knock on your front door, and they'll love to have a conversation with you. And one of the things that they will want to share with you, if you give them enough time, about their version of the Christian faith is that there is no trinity in the New Testament. And they will be right when they say that the word trinity does not occur in the New Testament. But you need to tell them that the concept of Trinity is throughout the New Testament. Here is some red letters in the New Testament where we experience the concept of the Trinity, God who is three in one. You notice Jesus says baptizing them in the name. is singular, not plural, not in the names. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is imperative that we receive the Christian faith as a Trinitarian Christian faith. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The three are one. And God the Father is equal to God the Son, who's equal to God the Holy Spirit. And those three are one. That's core conviction in the Christian community. Now, I know in the Christian community, there are a lot of practical universalists that are around. They may not articulate, but they believe that you know, everyone's okay when they die with or without Jesus. That's sort of practical universalism. They may also be practical Unitarians floating around in our churches. Uh, they may speak the Trinitarian language. They may use the reference to the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. But they think that somehow the Father is greater than the Son. And they're not quite sure what to do with the Holy Spirit. But this Trinitarian theology is at the core of what it means to be Christian. We in the Methodist Church, we will transfer people into membership if and only if they come from another Trinitarian denomination. Not just from anywhere, but another Trinitarian denomination. Trinity, the word may not be in the New Testament, but the concept is certainly there. God, the three in one. We have experienced this God who is one in three ways in God's work of redemption in the world. So Jesus says, go make disciples, initiating them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The early Christian church had a wonderful phrase about how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit related to each other is a, is a Greek term, perichoresis, and it means a dance. And I love that image. 
The early Christians talked about the dance of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit dancing with each other. And part of what we do when we invite people into relationship with God is we invite them to join the dance with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it is a dance that begins in this world, but it is a dance that is eternal. Go, making disciples, baptizing them, in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. And then the rest of what Jesus says here in these red letters, people are quick to ignore. He says, and teaching them to obey. That's a word our culture doesn't like, obey. Everything, not just what we like, but everything that I, Jesus, have commanded These are red letters, and we are to go make disciples, initiate them into the community of faith, teaching them as we teach one another to obey everything that Jesus said. All of the red letters in the Gospels. Of course, Jesus said that we are to love the Lord our God with mind, soul, strength, body, everything that we are and have, and we're to love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus taught that we are to love our enemies. Jesus taught that we are to feed the hungry, not because they somehow deserve it, but just simply because they're hungry. Jesus taught that we are to care for the least among us. We are our brothers and our sisters' keeper, and we're to care for the most vulnerable. Jesus, and you need to keep looking at the red letters, Jesus even taught about marriage. When he taught about marriage, he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to the woman that God has given him, and the two shall become one. There's a lot that Jesus taught in the Gospels, and sometimes we love, particularly in this culture, to pick and to choose what parts we teach or receive. And I know that none of us live perfect lives of living up to everything that Jesus teaches us. But let's not make the decision to pick and choose. Let's at least make the decision to allow all of the teachings of Christ to be our standard, to be our goal, to be our dream for ourselves and the world. Jesus said, go, make disciples of everyone baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. I remember when I came into the Methodist Church 35 years ago, and hearing for the first time from our book of worship, and it's also in our discipline, that the church exists for the conversion of the world. I thought, wow, now that's a task. But that's what Jesus gave us here in the Great Commission. We exist for the conversion, the changing of the world as we help the world come to Christ, which will happen one day. That's an audacious task. And here he's just given it to these, perhaps just these 11 simple people here on this mount in the region of the Galilee. And he's given this same task to us, we would be so foolish if we thought we could do this, taking Christ to the world, making disciples of all people, baptizing all people 
into the life of the Trinity, into the life of the Christian community, teaching all people to obey what Jesus taught. We can't do this on our own. And I'm so glad that's why I believe Jesus ends this great commission with a great promise. Notice how he ends the great commission. He says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. You can do whatever it is God's calling you to do. We can do whatever it is God's calling us to do because the presence of the living Christ is with us. The presence of the living Christ is within us. It is not our ministry. It is his ministry through us. We can face whatever we must face in life and accomplish whatever we must accomplish in life because the promise is from Jesus, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, the one, the one who rules heaven and earth and has all authority on heaven and earth, is calling us to this great adventure. And he promises us his spirit as we seek to live out this great adventure. When the ruler of the universe, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, calls us to this, the most rational, reasonable thing we can do is to trust what he says and then obey. The old gospel song says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, hear that piece, in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, his good will, he abides with us still. And with all who trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way, no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Amen.